I'm Corey Astell. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 23, we read A Conflict of Visions by Thomas Sowell from 1987. Thomas Sowell was born in Gastonia, North Carolina in 1930. His father died shortly after his birth, and he was raised in the segregated South until the family moved to Harlem in 1939. Their soul earned acceptance to New York's prestigious Stuyvesant High School, but was forced to drop out before graduating to help support his family. After working a variety of jobs, he was drafted into the United States Marines during the Korean War, where he was assigned a position as a photographer. After the war, Sol got a civil service job in Washington, D.C., and took night classes at Howard University. His professors encouraged him to apply to Harvard, where he graduated magna cum laude in 1958 with a bachelor's in economics. He earned a master's from Columbia the following year and his Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago in 1968. Sowell taught economics at Cornell, Howard, Rutgers, Brandeis, Amherst, and UCLA. In 1980, he became a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He also became a syndicated columnist, writing on economics, race, education, and other topics. Three books for which he's best known are A Conflict of Visions, today's reading, Division of the Anointed from 1995, and The Quest for Cosmic, Cosmic Justice, 1999. In all, Sowell wrote more than 30 books, the most recent of which was published in 2018. He retired from writing his syndicated column in 2016 at the age of 86 to focus on his hobby of photography. All right, so A Conflict of Visions really has a pretty simple premise, and that is that Soul wants to introduce us to this concept of visions, which is, and what is a vision? A vision is basically sort of a different sense for how the world works, a different approach to understanding the world and to taking in information and making judgments about society and about how the, uh, our politics should operate. And he identifies two central conflicting sides. One is the constrained vision and one is the unconstrained vision. And these two sides are reasoning from fundamentally different premises, he says. They come from very, basically polar opposite ends and just look at things very, very differently. Throughout this reading, we'll see how each vision cashes out in terms of policies and programs. I think above all, and I think Kyle would agree with this, the, the two visions really give us a sense for how maybe the other side might look at a situation you know, we're usually so quick to assign bad motives to someone's understanding of a political situation or policy situation. When I think what Thomas Sowell's project here is to sort of present to us that people are coming coming to a problem or situation from completely different ends. Right. I, I, I do agree with that. And I think it's, 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 I thought it was um, useful to think of things this way, because I, I do try to assume that the other side is acting in good faith, but sometimes you, you read people saying things and you think that can't, you can't really believe that you can't really mean that. And they, I know they often think that of us as well, or you know, it must be a hidden motive. You know, it must be, 
who's, I've seen many times in articles I've written, like, who's paying you to write this? I'm like, well, only the people who are publishing it and they don't even pay that much. So it's, <laughs> it's, you know, but I see that a lot. And, you know, it's like, well, he's secretly on Clinton's payroll or Trump's payroll. Most people, most people have a vision of how the world works and that's what, and, and, and Sowell gets into that in the interesting way. Cause it's, it's not the way he describes a vision. It's not just a theory that's tested by evidence, although evidence can feed into it. And the way we, the things we observe in the world certainly inform our visions, you know, but it's, it's almost like a more spiritual belief in just the nature of mankind. And mm-hmm. you know that, and it's hard to shift. And then once you know, once you have a certain way of how the thinking about how the world works, a lot of things follow from that, which could be disproved by evidence. But often, that we see in politics all the time, somebody will say, "Well, look, that thing you advocated, we did it, and it, here's why it didn't work." And, but you, and then you'll come back and say, "Yeah, but." The underlying idea is still good. You know, the execution was bad or, well, okay, we need to shift it this way, tweak this. It's still the better idea than whatever you're talking about over there. You know, so I think that the vision is really just sort of a deeply rooted sense of how does this world work? How does mankind work? Yeah. And it's almost a disposition, sort of a personality mm-hmm. almost. And so like to your point, you can't really argue someone out of their just the way that their mind works, you know, it's like your brain works this way and mine works the other way. You know, there's some similarities, but there's also some, some real differences. And so I think the, this entire book is essentially a compare and contrast of the two principal visions that he identifies the constrained versus unconstrained. And, uh, once we get going, I think each vision will take shape, but, uh, cause the entire book is basically compare, contrast, compare, contrast, compare, contrast in, in different aspects of political and, uh, and mm-hmm. social life. But to get started, constrained, he calls this a tragic vision of the human condition. Deals in trade-offs rather than solutions. Relies on incentives rather than dispositions to get the job done. And intentions are irrelevant. So let's unpack that a little bit. So for trade-offs, what he means is, he says, whatever solutions developed to restrain or ameliorate human evils will themselves impose costs and possibly create new social ills. This is a concept we've talked about a uh, hundred times by now yeah. that having good intentions is not enough to make something work. And very often, you know, you're going to tweak this dial here and pull that little lever there in the hopes that, that it will somehow fix a problem and, and lead to the actual solution. But in the constrained vision, you're basically, you, you come to the table with this understanding that no, it doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. Humans don't behave that way. You know, there's always going to be trade-offs. You know, if you can raise taxes, but then you're going to get less of that mm-hmm. activity. You know, you can't raise taxes into infinity because then people will stop acting entrepreneurially. Instead, they'll just become a lawyer or, a, mm-hmm. or an accountant instead of you know, trying to invent the next big thing. So in the constrained vision, it takes human nature as a given I want to talk more about this, but really basically like in the unconstrained vision, it views human nature as variable. Another conversation you and I have had multiple times, like do, do, do human beings start, do we come to the table? Well, in, in, in the religious context, we'd call it a fallen human mm-hmm. being. And in, in other contexts, we just say, Hey, humans are not perfect and we don't have perfect information. And even if we did, you know, we're still going to make mistakes. 
and there's nothing you can do about that. And humans will naturally, you know, try to one up one another or, or, you know, talking from our Fukuyama episode, you know, Nietzsche identifies our uh, megalothymia. Maybe not every single person, but plenty of people will want to demonstrate that they're better than others and will want to get ahead and, you know, hate the idea of, of uh, being held down. But in the unconstrained vision, they basically view that as a social construction, that the, the reason people behave the way they do is not because they were born that way. Instead, they were born with a tabula rasa, as we've talked about before, a blank slate. They come to the table as a, a blank slate, and they behave the way they do because they're culturally conditioned, because the institutions of society are structured in such a way, you know, because of their environment, their family upbringing, whether they were privileged or not at birth. These, these are all factors that, that create the human behavior as opposed to having a, some core human nature. Right. Yeah. That, I think that the um, given versus variable is the, if we're going to distill this book down to one thing, that's the huge difference. And it's, it's one we, as you said, we've talked about a lot. Yeah. Can, can human behavior be changed by the system in which the, a given human grows up around? And he starts to contrast, he, he uses as his examples throughout the book, um, Adam Smith as a representative of the constraint and William Godwin as who was a contemporary of Smith as a representative of the unconstrained. We don't hear much about Godwin. I actually, I actually had not read anything by him, but um, I think it, w- it was good to pick somebody from the same time who was looking at the same kind of facts as Smith was looking at and see, you know, these guys were both observing the same political scene they had very different visions, you know, why? And I mean, it, you can see why Smith won out because it works. I mean, but that's also naturally for us as conservatives, we would say that. But um, Godwin's vision articulated every bit as well. It just um, didn't turn out to be true. But as, you know, as it is with the, uh, as we we're talking about with the visions, the fact that Smith's observation on how an economy and how a society works turn out to actually be pretty predictive of how things work. That still doesn't dissuade everybody from the other view. You know, there are still people who are going to say, oh, sure. Yeah. But really we can, we can achieve these higher purposes. We can overcome our base human nature and change ourselves into not self-interested beings. You know, it doesn't seem to come true yet, but it's, it's certainly something that people want to believe. And uh, he, he, uh, this was a particularly good lens in just looking at the at the debate between Smith and Godwin, but also the debate that continues unto this day. Yeah, I agree. So so you have Adam Smith and, and Hobbes we've talked about before. They're going to argue that humans are guided by self-interest. That's what you just said. Yeah, that's and that's what that's how an economy works is. It's, he says, guided by an invisible hand almost, because if there's an opportunity uh, to make a living or to make money, then somebody's going to go ahead and do it based on self-interest, driven by self-interest. And that's the constrained vision. But in the unconstrained vision, they say, no, humans are not guided by self-interest. Instead, they're conditioned to to pursue their self-interest. They're conditioned by our capitalistic society, the institutions that have been created were we're so deeply in the matrix that we can't get out. We don't realize that 
what we believe are our own you know, personal guiding principles and motivating factors are actually imposed upon us at birth by the system that we're born into. Yeah. And that's, I, I hear socialists say this all the you know, the capitalist system makes this, it makes that. And, and it always seems weird to me because I don't think of capitalism as even really being a system. And I, because you're caught in the matrix, Kyle. Yeah, that's well, what. that's what they'd say, right? I'm in too deep, but <laughs> it feels like it's just what people do, and that's why when it, whenever any system is set up around the world that's you know anti-capitalist, people still do capitalist stuff on the side. There's you know yeah. like every every communist country has black markets, and you know, there's always you know prices that are set by markets always are happening you know, behind the scenes because people understand how value works and people are self-interested. And I, so, I mean, I've never really thought of how you know, capitalism is not a system in the way socialism is a system because you don't have to make anybody do it. It just happens. And that's kind of Smith's mm -hmm. point. It just happens. Everybody's going the same way. None of us have perfect information where none of us is forced to pursue the same goal as the people around them. We're just all trying to do the best we can for ourselves. And that in itself does end up creating better efficiencies, better standards of living, better just things just come together in a way that no one could possibly direct. And yet it has, you know, this, the idea of capitalism, whether it be a system or not, has lifted billions of people out of poverty with nobody having his hand on the, on the wheel. It just does it. And that's, yeah, that's kind of wild, but it's, it's, it's certainly my vision, and I think yours too, of how this world actually works. But yeah, reading this made me understand kind of what the other side says. You know, is you know, it's like you were saying how we're caught in the matrix, and it's I don't know. It it still seems wrong to me because I don't think there is a matrix. But I guess if you see the world as in a systematic way, the capitalism is just one system that we have chosen, as opposed to a different system of socialism or fascism or theocracy or whatever. I mean, to me, I obviously inclined to Smith's view of it. It's not, a, it's not a system. It's just, it's just us. It's just, it's just people being people. So you and I really have a constrained vision. I think that's, yeah. a so, but, but <laughs> I think it, but all of a sudden it kind of makes sense. Okay. If you, if you believe that, that humans really are tabula rasa, that they have no human, actual human nature, that, that they don't necessarily seek their self-interest that, you know, these side hustles that you say, you know, capitalism always springs up no matter mm. what, that that is, that's still somehow socially constructed. Then all of a sudden it does make a little sense of how maybe you could see or believe that as soul says, all human problems are entirely solvable. If you do twist this dial just this much and that dial that much and push this lever and pull that one, you know, Every, every time you are presented with a problem, it's entirely solvable. It's entirely fixable. With and, no trade-offs. Uh, with no trade-offs. Yes. And so then all of a sudden, intentions do become very important because in the, in the unconstrained vision, this is something that you and I have noticed our entire... I mean, I work in pol pol policy and politics and good grief. It's, I, I feel like the folks on the left, the way that they always evaluate a policy or a program is, well, you know, basically what were your intentions? I mean, did, I, I meant to do good, you know, I yeah. wanted to do good. And, uh, so, so it didn't work. Well, that's just because we need to twist this dial a little bit further, you know, or 
it's this reason or that reason. And you're kind of like, no, guess what? It doesn't really matter if you had a positive intention going in. It's, if it's not going to work, it's not going to work, you know? And, and, uh, these objectives that you are seeking, you know, this is not the way to achieve them. It, well, but you know, you get, you guys are going to sit and can, and can criticize all day long and say nothing works, but what we need to do is just get in there and start, you know, trying things and yeah. fixing them and tweaking it here and there. Yeah. The idea of intention being important always, that, this, that's one of the ways I think this book would, was illuminating to me because I don't think it is important usually, you know, it's like, like when one of my kids will say, I didn't mean to knock that glass of water over. <laughs> well, who cares? You did it. Just be more careful next time. Like the, the intention is irrelevant. Just, just try to pay attention to your surroundings Yeah. because the effect is what matters. The effect is the table's all wet now. So, you know, I mean, that's a minor thing and it's not like you're going to freak out over it, but it's, it's funny to hear the kids say, well, I didn't mean to. Well, uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe you're not morally culpable, but I don't really care about the morality. I'm just trying to like not have things spilling. Still, you got to pick it up. Yeah. It's got to get cleaned up now. There are, there are trade-offs. Yeah. And that exact you know, situation and last night. I didn't, I didn't mean to spill my Cheetos on the couch. Well, first of all, you shouldn't have been eating on the couch. Secondly, don't really care. Get the vacuum because you're cleaning it up. I'm not cleaning up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The intentions are irrelevant. And, and that always seems so weird about the, on the left I left's ideas it's like well we're trying to make things better yeah but you're screwing them up worse <laughs> so it doesn't matter what you want to do it only matters what actually happens yeah, yeah but i guess part of what that unconstrained vision is is that the um he quotes godwin here is saying that intention to benefit others is being the essence of virtue and virtue in turn is the road to human happiness so if your intentions are what makes your virtue well it yeah, I guess if you look at the world that way, then meaning to do good is the most important thing. Well, then that, now I can see in a way why they try a lot of these ideas, you know, and just rewrite this, start this over, take that tradition away because they're they're trying to fix the problems that both people on both sides acknowledge do exist. You know, problems of inequality and racism and and poverty and you know, I mean. And then Sol makes this point too, is that it's not that the constrained vision thinks these problems are insoluble and, well, what are you going to do? We think, we just think there's a different way to solve them. And it's mostly through uh, private action and, and the sort of invisible hand things that's, that Smith was about. But um, that whole thing just kind of gives me, a, I think Sol was, although he's clearly a conservative, um, he took a generous view of the other side too and saying, yeah, they're, they're trying to. They're, they're also trying to do good for the world or for this country or whatever. It's not, it's not what you often see in politics is, well, the other side is, you know, they just want to destroy everything. They hate this country. They hate the poor. You know, it's not that they, 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 and I think we, this is something we need more of in, in our national politics is both major parties want America to prosper, want the average guy to do better. They just have different ways of going about it. And it's fine to say that the other side is wrong and to present evidence that they're wrong and show why their ideas don't work. But their intentions, as irrelevant as intentions are, are at least good. And I think that in the way we relate to each other, that's an important thing to keep in mind. Even if it doesn't change the actual effects of their action, we can say, well, look, at least they're not 
saboteurs. They're not trying to destroy everything. They're just wrong about how to fix it. Yeah, and uh, and so in the con- in constrained vision, what you want is to create uh, he calls process characteristics, or basically limitations and checks and balances, in order to kind of manage trade offs. And you, if you set up the the right processes, then at the back end it'll be a, a just result. But on the, in, the, in the unconstrained vision, they are results based only. So so you don't judge a system by by the the rules and the regulations that get you there so much as by does it give the result that they want so for example he uses the example of running a race did everyone start at the same starting line you know did did, did everybody uh, jump at the the sound of the gun and know earlier you know if that's the case you know if we've set up these processes these you know the he calls this process characteristics if we set up the rules of the game that's fair for everyone then when the gun is fired, then whoever wins, that's a just result. But in the unconstrained vision, that, that's not what's just. What's just is, did the person win who I wanted to win? Mm-hmm. If not, or did, did, enough, did, did a different person win every time so that everybody had a turn, so that everybody had equal winning? Not, not, not an equal chance to win, but actually outcome-based did that did everyone get a chance to win so we talked about this in our scalia episode as it pertains to law right i mean mm-hmm. so in in scalia's understanding of of the role of judges i think you and i agree with judges the their role their their job is to apply the law as written to the facts and sometimes sometimes we get an outcome that we don't particularly love but if as long as we have solid rules then, then the outcome is a, is a good, moral, just outcome, as opposed to the, in the unconstrained vision, which would be shared by the basically all the liberal justices on the Supreme Court right now. A just system is not so much what they're worried about as just results. So if the system didn't hand the win to the little guy or whatever, whoever their, whatever their favorite group, their favorite group, if their favorite group didn't win, then it's not a just result. It's not a just system. It's only just based on outcome. Yeah, and I think, and a part of the part of what I thought Soul was illuminating on uh, was that people on the constrained side might also feel that an individual result is unfortunate, or you know, and they don't like that it turned out that way. But whereas the the unconstrained folks would say, well, we need to change the system to make the result work. The, the constraint would say, yeah, you could do that. But then what other things are going to be made worse by upsetting this entire system that we have in place now? How much mm-hmm. do you want to, you want to achieve that result? But it's like, uh, it's like squeezing a balloon. The air is going to go to a different part. You know, it's it, the injustice can't be just squeezed out with no consequences. That's right. Yeah. When you when you uproot the entire system of justice to you know make sure that the results are equal as you believe them, that word to be defined, then somebody else is going to say, "But now it's not equal in a different way. We need to change this." And then it's now well now it's unequal this way, and and then you have a, a system that is still unequal but now more chaotic. And that's that's sort of the trade off thing he keeps coming back to in the constrained vision is that 
it's not that it's impossible to correct a, a, a given injustice. It's just that correcting that injustice is likely to presu- pr- produce different injustices, maybe worse injustices. And that, oh, and it's also destroying faith in the system as you keep tweaking with these institutions of human government that we expect to have predictable results. Mm-hmm. So now they're unpredictable and it's still messed up. <laughs> How about a real life example of, a, of this that's active right now? And that is uh, Harvard's decision to to limit the number of Asians that, that are uh, admitted into the Harvard College. So how do they do about it? Well, they don't, they're not getting the result that they want from the system, which is basically like, take the test, get your grades, show me what you've done. There's too many Asians who are winning at that race. So instead, what we need to do is tweak it. Well, we're going to do this and you have to have uh, interesting personality too. And you don't. So yeah, so now, we can, now we can pick our favorite group. Yeah. They just assign all the Asians of, of ha- you know, having low personality. Which is, you know, if somebody on the right said, oh, all of the people of this race have uninteresting personalities, that would be <laughs> oh, yeah. quite the scandal. I mean, that's a yeah, racist well, thing to say. But our but, intentions yeah, were not right, though. That's right. The again, like, Their intentions okay, are good. Okay, I don't yeah. love what they did, but hey, the intent was right because we wanted to favor these other groups. And like, well, pff, what if their intent was different? You know, it's, it's still the same result. Well, then your intent was different means it was evil. That that does really explain how they could do that with a straight face, actually. Yeah, that kind of that's that. Well, see, that's another way Soul's been kind of eye opening because when you and I look at that, like it's the same thing. That's racism. <laughs> You're discriminating against <laughs> an entire race because of their race. You know how is that any different than when the Ivy Leagues didn't admit Jews in the old days, or when they would admit almost no blacks or Hispanics or anything else? Like you're doing the same thing, but I, yeah, now I can see that from their point of view, well, this time we mean it for a nice reason before we were just being racist. Now, uh, (laughs) we're trying to help, but yeah, I mean, for, for you and for me, it's it's the same thing, man. The result is the same. You're, you're discriminating on the basis of race. Yeah. yeah. You can see how people would butt heads and, and not each not understanding the other side and just think this is insanity. What are we doing here? But yeah, souls, um, rubric for the world kind of explains it doesn't give us a solution but it does explain why different folks would look at the exact same actions in very different ways yeah if, if what you're focused on if you if you the, view the world as social issues as basically engineering problems where you just got to tweak it here and there and the intent is what matters above all well then you can get away with much more than than the guy who supposedly has bad intent, and uh, and you're right. I mean, I I found that really all of a sudden. I, I mean, I you kind of know that, but he just makes it so blatantly plain mm-hmm. in, in understandable terms. And you're kind of like, wow, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, I get it. In the unconstrained vision, then they say he says the great obstacles to achieving social good are those benefiting from the existing social order and the inertia and blindness of others. So again, like the obstacles are not the fact that these problems are actually not solvable, but instead you have to make trade-offs. You have to make decisions. Like if we get it, if we do a little bit of this, then we're not going to get as much of that. Instead, it's like, no, 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 no. The obstacle is, is the knuckle dragging Neanderthal, right. That is getting in my way. Mm-hmm. 
you know, wants to give tax breaks to billionaires and millionaires. They are the ones, the, the, the privileged in society, they are the ones who are in our way. And that is what's impeding this policy or program from working. It's not, it's not the fact that it, uh, that, that we need to make trade-offs. It's not the fact that human problems are infinitely complex and unsolvable in so many instances, mo- almost all instances. No, instead it's, it's kind of almost like a scapegoat. It's like, these guys are the reason if they would just get out of the way. And then you have also the inertia and blindness of others, which, which rolls into the unconstrained view of, we need to have uh, the enlightened educated to guide the masses right. because they're smart enough to figure this out. And once they figured it out, I mean, Godwin was quoted multiple times in this book by soul is basically saying what we need is the smart people the enlightened they're the ones who can guide the rest. You know, they're the ones who can guide us around these, these obst, these human obstacles, the privileged and the, and those who are uh, hell bent on holding their power or whatever. I thought that really tied into the current sort of credentialism of the left too. And this, the idea yeah, of it really did. all these people who are our top leaders in the democratic party, you know, it's always, well, he went to Princeton, he went to Harvard, he went to Columbia. Yale Law, you know, on Stanford and, you know, did these great clerkships and did, you know, it's always about, it's great resumes. And I think Smith kind of detracts from the idea of academia as, you know, having any particular special knowledge of how humanity should be governed. And I, I think that kind of fits more into our democratic ideal. It's just, yeah, that guy might be really good in his field but it doesn't mean he knows how to live my life. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't mean he's more moral than I am. And it doesn't mean he knows more about any other field other than his specialty. And I think that's even more true than in Smith's day. Cause in those, in those days, scholars were more generalist. Now, when you look at, you know, who's running, who's, who are, who are the professors and, and educators they are very, specifically focused on a certain thing. And you could look at a guy who's one of the leading physicists in the, country and say, well, that guy's really smart. He should be in charge. But he might have the exact same dumb ideas about politics that, you know, his, uh, his neighbor who has little education would have, you know, because knowing how, you know, the, the workings of the universe, you know, transpire doesn't really give you any special knowledge of how should we fix social security? You know, how should we, right? you know, how should we build roads? And that, um, yeah, that that's what this kind of made me think of is the growing credentialism, you know, the growing focus on elite education. And does it make for better leaders? I I don't think it does necessarily. Well, so contrast that and says that in the constrained vision, it's not credentialism. He says yeah. knowledge is predominantly experience, he says. Mm-hmm. Any individual's own knowledge alone is grossly inadequate for social decision making. Knowledge is thus the social experience of the many rather than the reason employed by a few. In other words, like knowledge is based on experience. What we mean by that is we've tried taxing at 99% and it didn't work. So let's try something else. Or we tried totalitarian uh, communism. That didn't work. So let's try something else rather than going repeatedly going back to the same well over and over and over again. Because no, it wasn't. 
the fact that the system didn't work or the program or the policy. No, it was because the intentions were bad and by the other side who tried to, you know, sabotage it or whatever. And, and what the unconstrained would say is these policy misfires are just correctable mistakes. Uh, <laughs> and a lot of times not they're more like isolated. Okay. We, all right, we see what we need to fix. Let's fix it. And he says, thinking people and the brightest and the best play a special role. And this really just jumped out at me and you made this point, but there's this book by David Halberstrom called the, that of that name, the best and the brightest about how we got into the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend it to anyone who's interested in, in in, uh, politics or policy, even if you're not super interested in in, uh, war history, but it, it is the, one of the best books that I've ever read because what he really shows is, you know, the Kennedys, they were, you know, they, obviously they were as credentialed, you know, part of the, the elite um, smart crowd. And they hired a bunch of uh, president Kennedy hired the brightest and the best, all these Harvard uh, degrees, all these Yale degrees, the very cream of the crop, you know, from uh, Northeast uh, educational institutions and, LBJ hung on to these guys and what do they do? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a deeply insightful book that, you know, being super smart and having a collection of super smart people does not guarantee results. In fact, they'll make the same human errors. They have human nature like anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, they have their own petty, uh, jealousies and, and ambitions and, and, uh, it gave us, uh, the, the war in Vietnam, which was, you know, I think just about everyone would agree is, uh, was problematic at best. Yeah. And he, um, that kind of leads into another point soul made about, uh, age that again, kind of opened my eyes to why things are the way they are on the other side. You know, if, if knowledge is, is experience, like we have the constrained vision seem to think then it, it makes more sense to, listen to people who have done things for a while, been around, tried different things, different fields, you know, somebody who's a steady hand, somebody who's been in business or in government or in the military and has, has led things and been responsible for things. And then when you, when you contrast that with where it's special and unique wisdom, not wisdom, even special and unique learning intelligence, it explains why somebody could want, you know, like, college kids to be taken seriously, you know, and when, you know, Antifa kids are protesting and they're all 22 years old and have never done anything. I think it's a reaction from our side to say, well, who cares what they think? They don't know anything. They've never done anything. They don't, they don't know how the world works. They've just been in, in school our whole lives. But I think if, if you really value um, intelligence above experience, and if you think experience is almost an artifact of being in this corrupt system and that anybody who has that much experience is himself corrupt and his intentions are bad because he just wants to preserve his own, you know, so his own system, his own place in that system, then it, it makes more sense to look at people who've never done anything but have very clear, unnuanced visions of how the world should be. Yeah. And that... I mean, I still think it's incredibly dumb, but it, it at least I understand they're thinking a little better and saying, oh, yeah, these 
these college kids, they're uncorrupted. You know, it's like when, <laughs> yeah. when, when you get grade school kids yelling about global warming to a 80 year old Senator, like that, that Feinstein video that was going around a couple months ago. And she's trying to explain to them, you know, like I've been doing this Senate thing for a while now. <laughs> I mean, there's trade-offs here, you know, you can't just say no more coal, you know, that's going to cripple our economy and it's going to put people out of work. You have to, you know, but you know, these kids all fired up by their, you know, equally inexperienced teachers are just saying, well, just stop it. It's our future. You know, that it doesn't matter. You're, you're part of a, an evil system. <sighs> That's and a that, great insight, Gal. That's a great insight. You know, it, uh, I, I view these situations and I'm like, you know, I'd walk up to these kids and tell them what time it is, you know, like, yeah, I'm kicking your butt out of school or whatever. And you know, like, you're going to behave this way. You're not getting away with this. Get a know? job, raise a family, then come yeah. back and talk to me. You know, you might, you might have picked something up along the way. You might, you might see that these utopian visions you know, there's a few twists in the road that keep them from coming true. Mm. And I didn't think this episode of Conservative Minds would be defending Diane Feinstein. But in this instance, <laughs> I think she was practicing the constrained vision that comes from years of experience and saying, yeah, there are trade-offs. If we just push everything the way you want it to go, there's going to be effects of that. There's, it's going to hurt a lot of people. It might achieve the result you're aiming at, but it might also produce far worse results in other fields. So. Mm -hmm. that's great so we're having so much fun it's getting late but I, there's one i really wanted to touch on his his description of social justice uh I, I just thought it was so good but okay so in the unconstrained vision transfers of material benefits to the less fortunate are a matter of justice and humanity we've already talked about this individuals are entitled to some share of the wealth produced by society by virtue of being a member of that society regardless of whether they contributed or how much they contributed or whether they just blood sucked off the, <laughs> off the system, off the rest of society, each member of society is entitled to his or her share, irrespective of any individual contributions made or not to the creation of that wealth and social justice. Of course, he, he equates directly with, uh, you know, income inequality, and this just jumped out of me because again, he wrote this book 30 years ago and the obsession, absolute obsession, just about all of my liberal friends is, is income inequality. It's yeah. like, we, we cannot stand that it's not equal. And you're like, well, yeah, we could make, you know, this is a conversation you've had, you know, I've had billions of times. I'm like, yeah, we can make it equal, but it's going to be equal in mediocrity. It's going to be equal in poverty, mm -hmm. but no, I mean, it's just like, it's this, it's this you know, mosquito that, you know, they have to swat, you know, no, no, I cannot possibly handle the fact that there's, that there's a, a an income uh, different to uh, the distribution is not entirely equal. And again, like in the constrained vision, he says, most writers with a constrained vision ignore social justice as a concept altogether, <laughs> yeah. which couldn't be more true because, you know, half the time I'm like, you know, uh, there a couple of years back when this was really kind of new to me, I guess, because so many people kept talking about it and I was like, okay, well, let me learn a little bit more about what it is you're getting at. It's like, there's nobody on the right writing about it because it's just completely ignored. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like social, he says, social justice is futile and dangerous and you know the idea that we're ever going to make a level 
perfectly equitable society is just delusional. You know, yeah, you can make the trade-off of having a level society whereby totalitarianism rules. Okay, but we don't want to make that trade-off. And so these uh, utopian visions are just that. They're they're utopian uh, delusions. And so we don't we don't fixate on the fact that, you know, Bill Gates is a, is a multi-billionaire or, or Jeff Bezos. Cause it's like, yeah, they built a company and all of us have benefited from that. Every single one of us, I benefit from Amazon every single yep. week and, uh, it makes society better and okay. Yeah. There's always going to be people who are unequal. Guess what? Stalin was a little more equal than all those uh, folks in the gulag, you know, when you're trying to level and, and create this, uh, this utopian society. So anyway, I, I just found that super interesting because this complaint and criticism about social justice and, but, uh, but for them, for the unconstrained vision, it's not about the rules of the game. It's, it's not about uh, a starting line or giving people oppor- uh, opportunities. It's about the actual results. The actual ex- results are unequal. And so therefore, you know, this preoccupation. Yeah. I mean, that point about social justice, I, I remember, uh, taking a college course. And it was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase. And I made some comment in class about all these different kinds of justices that we have now. And I remember my friend said after, afterwards, I knew you were a conservative because you'd never even heard of the idea of social justice. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because I thought justice was, you know, everybody getting what he, does, what he is due, which in this constrained vision is, you know, like you said, playing everybody plays by the same rules. And we may have unequal gifts from nature, but we're not getting unequal advantages from the system. We're just, we are what we are and we're all following the rule of law. And if the results be unequal, it's typically because for a reason, not because of uh, corruption or, uh, you know, malign intents. That seemed like a very simple concept of justice to me. And then, you know, and I was glad my eyes were open to the fact that other people look at there being multiple kinds of justice, but none of those really make any sense to me. And I think that the competing visions soul describes are explain why it doesn't make any sense to me and why my version doesn't make any sense to them. It's, we are looking at things differently. He, towards the end of the book, he makes a comparison between, between science and, uh, I guess, I guess this is sociology or economics, whatever, whatever this is, politics. There's often two competing visions in science too. When people are trying to explain a natural phenomenon, you know, um, why is, why does the world work this way? Why do, why do stars do this? Why do animals do this? But they don't, those competing visions. So says they don't last centuries because in science evidence will, uh, prove or disprove one of them might disprove both of them, but mm-hmm. You know, when the scientific method will yield a result between those two competing visions, and then scientists will say, oh, okay, I mean, yeah, I see. That's the one that's right. Let's move on to new questions. Whereas the nature of humanity is there are no experiments that can be run because each of us is different. Each time is different. You can't, there's no laboratory for humanity in a way that there is in science. So that mm-hmm. even evidence produced by the competing visions being brought into effect doesn't necessarily convince the other side. So say, well, that that got messed up because there was a war going on, or that got messed up because of that 
you know, there were crop failures there. That's just nature, you know, or you got, that got messed up because that one guy messed everything up, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a, a problem that can't be solved. I don't think he, I don't think he even really attempts to solve it just, but, uh, in explaining it, I think he does a good service to people who are trying to explain it's good to understand the other side because you, know, you see, I see people on the internet butting heads with each other all day and yelling at each other and neither side walks away convinced. Soul gives us a good reason of a good explanation of why that's so. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. So we're at the end. Any, what's your final thoughts? Well, that's a, I mean, that's about it. I think this is a good book to read if you want to, understand the other side. And I think it's important to understand the other side if you're trying to persuade the other side. Because I mean I mean Soul talks about visions as being pretty persistent, but people do change their minds. He talks about the road to Damascus conversions do occur. And he says even if this conversion is on a single issue, repercussions on one's general vision may lead to a domino effect on other assumptions or beliefs. I think that's true. I think people can people do change from left to right or right to left. I mean we I think we have all known people who've changed their views because of events, because of evidence. It's we're not going to convince everybody, but if you want to convince the other side, I think understanding how the other side thinks mm-hmm. is important. And it it builds empathy. It also just gives you insight into why they they're doing these things that might otherwise be inexplicable. So from that perspective, I think Sol was very, um, writes in very clear language um, and explains these concepts that I think we had both, like you said, we've both been talking about this throughout this podcast, these ideas. But I think he really boils it down in a way that makes a system that makes us a- better able to understand exactly why the world is divided the way it is. Mm-hmm. He really illustrates how we're talking past one another too. Mm. And that was what was really enlightening to me is to think, you know, again, I have quite a few friends who are, who are on the left and just this deep preoccupation with income inequality and with uh, equality as it relates to race and that sort of thing. I've always joked with them and said like, your obsession with this is unhealthy. (laughs) 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 But now I get it a little bit, you know, and and I also could understand how that state of mind would just bring endless disappointment too, because Mm -hmm. to me, it's self-evident that there is such a thing as human nature and that it did, that it does hold constant across cultures, across countries and time zones people will seek their self-interest that's just how the that's just how it is and that's not a problem that can be engineered away if your view of the world is that all these problems are are solvable just engineering problems then and, and that uh you know intentions are what matter and the real obstacles to your success are other stubborn pig-headed you know unenlightened people well then, yeah, I, I I could see why you get so upset, and I could see why you know if if you think that the true nature of the world should be complete equality of results, that you would constantly feel frustrated and uh, constantly like me trying to change policy and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, you 
I just start from the, from the, again, self-evident premise that people have more talent than others. You know, I will never have the basketball abilities of LeBron James. And I just accept that, yeah. you know, it just is what it is. And I got to worry about doing the best at, in my own lane, you know what I mean? Rather than trying to worry about whether I have an actual absolute uh, equality of result. With him, uh, soul, he quotes a little bit uh, from uh, John Rawls's a theory of justice. And maybe someday after we go through all these conservative books, maybe we move to, you know, reading some of these liberal books from a conservative perspective. He, it, this is one that I'd, I'd like to put at the top of the list. And to, to me, it's, it just seemed like a, a kind of a goofy project to, you know, figure out if, if, if we could, you know, before humans were born, we could, you know, arrange for exactly how, how to ensure equality results to me. It's just, it's just kind of like, it's science mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, okay. You might be able to come up with some crazy thing, but as soon as, as soon as you push play on the video game, then people are going to start differentiating themselves immediately. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> anyway, that's for another time. I, I actually really enjoyed this book. Uh, it was, it was kind of easy reading because, you know, he just basically hits on the same theme um, for a couple hundred pages and, and, uh, but anyway, su- really insightful. I think that you could, you know, pick any chapter and read it and you pretty much have the gist of it. So I recommend it in that way. Uh, for next time, we're going to read a book by Charles Murray, uh, the sociologist called coming apart, the state of white America, which I fa- I've found fascinating. I read it years ago. i just read it again for this podcast. Uh, that was published in 2012. So catch us next time. Thanks.